Hello, everyone. This is our first episode of the podcast we are trying to do. And uh, I, we want to call it the journey of science because, you know, we are hoping to capture the journey of a scientist along with their research and basically the entire journey up to here so far. And so to introduce us, I am Gopu and we have Zane here and we, yeah, Zane, please. I'm sorry. I'm hijacking everything. <laughs> That's all right. So, yeah, so we two are researchers. So to, uh, in episode one, we are just trying to lay down the foundation of what we want to do, talk about both of our research and uh, basically have like this template thing going on. So from next uh, episode, we'll have another scientist joining us. So Zane, do you have anything to think? Hi, um, so I'm Zane, as Kupu said. I am I'm currently an assistant professor, uh, and I started my lab, I guess, about a year ago, officially, uh, in person, I say, because of COVID, I wasn't allowed to start it in person. So we, I was teaching virtually uh, for a while, and then January of 2021, I was able to get into the lab and start doing things. So it's been about a year and a half, I guess. So when did you actually start your professorship? Like which? It was fall of 2021. Oh my God, I don't remember. Um, yeah, 2021. No, oh, 2020. And to our, to our audience. So uh, we both are related academically through Dr. Shay's lab. Mm-hmm. So, Zane was a, a researcher there and I came as a postdoc. And I think we um, overlapped for about a month yeah. because then you were teaching me some techniques. And right after that, the Beer County lockdown happened. Then I came back. I think you already got the position by then. Yeah, it was. Yeah, I remember. So it was February 2020. Um, I had interviewed, done all, done some interviews, faculty interviews. Uh, and then March around spring break, everything shut down <clears throat> and a lot of them actually canceled. Uh, oh, did they? Yeah. A lot of the searches wow. actually got canceled and I wasn't even sure if, if this one was going on, but I had gone through far enough, I guess, in the, uh, uh, in interview process, I had already gone out in person and done all of that stuff that they continued and they, I think they really pushed to keep the faculty line open and so it was it was very a weird process because it was i was hired uh like middle of august and i started in september so it was like hey you want the job uh, in two weeks you start and i was like what am i doing <laughs> so i teach uh, anatomy physiology and they're like yeah you're going to teach in the fall and i was just like oh okay so you don't teach cell biology you teach anatomy and physiology do you I teach, yeah, I teach anatomy, physiology right now. Um, and so the nice thing was everything was still virtual at the time. It was all remote. So I was actually uh, still in San Antonio that semester, which was pretty rough because I was still trying to finish things in the lab, right? Yeah. Wrap some stuff up, get some data finished. Uh, the paper, the cell, uh, nature communications paper was still under revision, I think, at the time. So we're finalizing the last few experiments. Because I remember you were doing calcium imaging experiments then. Yep. So that was through that fall 2020. And then January 2021, 
Um, so I had started in September, 2020. And then by January, I had moved up to Denton uh, to start my position. So I was kind of like this half, like in San Antonio, half in Denton for a period, which was, which was not a fun experience. <laughs> <laughs> that was like work all day work, right. Get all my teaching stuff done all day. Um, doing zoom lectures and you know, working with students and then analyzing data all night. I mean, it was like from 8 PM to 2 AM, but then that's when I was doing the data for the, for the paper. And so we were either collecting the calcium imaging data or I was analyzing it and then writing. And so since you started your lab, like very recently, how is it the transition? Like you, you know, going from a researcher in one lab to have the entire responsibility of a lab? Um, when, when that's students, a great question. Uh, and also when students call you, call you Professor Lebrun, so how does it feel, right? It's interesting. So uh, under, I work with a lot of undergraduates and yeah. I, I get Mr. or Miss or <laughs> teacher all the time. There's, there's a weird <laughs> misunderstanding of what's going on, um, which is okay, right? I. It, um, I, it doesn't bother me, um, but it is definitely, you know, a huge life accomplishment to get oh, to definitely. right? It's something you work for from day one of graduate school is Basically. make the decision to get that faculty position. And so it's, you know, it's, it's fun. There's, I think um, my third year as a postdoc uh, in Jenny's lab, I had this realization that um, I could be a PI, right? I, th I think I have a very good skill set for doing so. And it was once I had that realization that really the things turned around as a postdoc for me. Uh, and, it, and it was skills in terms of building teams, working with people, managing teams, um, putting teams together. Like I found that I was really pretty good at it. And it was something that I think Ginny gave me a lot of freedom to do so. Mm -hmm. right, which was very fortunate because it was, it was a confidence builder for me. You know, the first few years as a postdoc, I struggled um, quite a bit. And once I've kind of found that strength, then I really leaned into it. You know, I think, you know, for this specifically referring to this paper, um, I put together three different teams of mm -hmm. graduate students, undergrads and research assistants and, that experience was just invaluable in terms of starting a lab. I think, uh, you know, there's a, there's a um, pride thing that you have to deal with, right? Like uh, I can't run a Western blot to save my life. Uh, and there's something you just have to like accept about that. Right. <laughs> so I know there's limitations to my bench skills. Um, I've got a lot of great bench skills, Western yeah. blot, I'm not hesitant to admit I cannot do it. Um, I, if I, if I have to have a Western blot done, I will go to somebody else because it's just not worth wasting all of that time. And that was something I had to come to terms with, right? Mm -hmm. When to learn to ask for help and bringing in those people onto a team that filled those weaknesses and made them, you know, strengths and not, not weaknesses. Yeah. I mean, it's the, I mean, when I came here, I was, in the, I was not even sure if this is, I mean, 
if I would really like being a postdoc because my PhD was, I mean, I did my PhD in great lab, but then it was very intense. Like it was a very intense PhD. Mm-hmm. So right after that, I was, I mean, of course, I really wanted to do, pursue my science because, you know, I liked it, but then I didn't know. I mean, you, you know, when you do your PhD, you hear all these horror stories about all these other postdocs and all these different labs. Right. So I, I, I didn't know. It's like, am I going to invest like six, seven years of my life doing something? It's, it's, it's also being paid very less. Yeah. I mean, compared to my friends in industry. Right. So when I factored everything, I was like, mm, I don't know. But then, then I, thought to myself let's let's go to this lab and see but then after coming here it's it's been such a life-changing experience because i realized that i'm a good mentor i really like working with people and now it's it's i mean it was not what i was expecting it to be and now i really want to be a pi i mean of course i sometimes tell my fiance like oh the money and everything i mean of course right but then this is it's been very fulfilling. Like I never expected it to be this fulfilling, you know? I mean, of course, I, we work so hard. It's, be, it's, it's, it's hard work. It's not, it's not for faint-hearted. But at the same time, I'm pretty much enjoying it. That I didn't really anticipate doing. It was quite surprising. You didn't anticipate enjoying? I mean, I, <laughs> I did. At the same time, I, did, I didn't enjoy. I mean, I didn't think I would enjoy it this much. I see. So what do you, what is it that you enjoy about it? Oh, everything. I mean, it's working with kids, kids, I mean, undergrads, right? Working with undergrads, planning experiments with them, sitting in a group meeting, even talking about every single bit of it. You know, it's, it's a, Mm -hmm. I would say the entire experience of it. I really love it. It's, it's, it even surprises me how much I Love this. The only thing I hated when people reject my grants. Oh. Yeah, yeah. That that never that never goes away. Oh God, no. So that, that was another big thing for me was I realized um, I really like writing grants. Like that's probably the thing I like doing the most. Um, and once I, especially as a once I moved into as a postdoc, once I kind of got to the point where I was writing grants. Mm-hmm. working with grants and helping with grants um i really felt fulfilled that's nice and, and i think especially as a pi especially as a pi at a, at a kind of a new pi at kind of a smaller school i write a lot of grants i'm i mean that's pretty much all i do and 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 how do you generate preliminary data for this one do you work with your students are you like doing bench and writing and if you're doing it how do you balance it right yeah, and I think that's that's that teamwork skill that you have to learn. Um, and I think I got a lot of advice um, from a bunch of different people. And you know, I'm I still work in a lab. I mean, my students are all they went on summer vacation, so I'm like <laughs> on cells and organoids right now. So <laughs> I'm still in the lab. Um, I work with a lot of undergrads, so we have a huge undergraduate population and. The struggle with that is that you're constantly training new people. So you can't really train somebody and they're not around long enough undergrads, two semesters, maybe uh, pretty much. And then you have to retrain somebody. So it's not like you can kind of get this momentum going of training. Um, I'm I'm just now kind of at the point, I have a couple of senior, senior um, 
more experienced graduate students. So I have a PhD student and a couple of master's students that have been around for about a year. And so they, all of the really basic techniques, tissue culture techniques, histology techniques, you know, we've, they've, they've gotten to the point they can do them. They can start training other people. And so I'm less training constantly and more, you know, pushing them to get the data themselves. Um, again, at the same time, because they're still, everybody's still pretty new. There's still mm -hmm. a lot of issues. And so I have to account for the fact that things get screwed up, things get contaminated, you know, reagents get left out overnight. So there's, there's always that, which is kind of frustrating. So I try not to, and part of it is a personal thing. Like I'm trying not to do it for them because they yeah. need to learn. And then it's easy for me to say like, I could, some of these things like I can do in three days, it takes them two to three weeks to do. Um, I try to tell myself like, give them the two to three weeks to do it. And then eventually you don't have to do anything. They can, they will be more and more independent. And that's kind of yeah. what I yeah. try to work towards. So I am still in the lab. Um, some of it is, I can't afford for some things to not work. Oh, right? I can't yeah. afford for them to try and make a mistake. Uh, and then there are some things that I'm happy to let them make plenty of mistakes on so that they can learn. So it's kind of a balance. I mean, how did your direction of research change from when you were postdoc researcher <laughs> when you were in PI and you are a PI, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, it's, that's the grant writing, I think. Um, you really write, and the, the creative process in science, I think, comes in grant writing. And I got to where I was like, what am I really interested in? What are the major questions that have, what's my story? That's what I always talk about with my students. It's like, what's your story? What's your personal story? What's the story you're trying to tell as a scientist? That's what you are. You're a storyteller. Um, you've got little control over what the story ends up being because you're just uncovering it as you go along, but you have to tell a story. And, you know, <clears throat> I don't think my questions that have driven me have changed since I got into science. Um, what are your questions? Why doesn't the brain repair itself? Like a cyborg brain that it boop, 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 goes into bed. That's pretty much the main thing. And so then from there, I, you know, how to carve out fundable questions, right? That's really <laughs> And it's funny because what, what I'm like, what I pitch in my faculty interviews versus what actually is being done now, it's, it's interesting how they diverged over a, the course of a year between what gets, you know, what projects are getting funded and what's, what's not getting funded. And so, um, you know, I was really interested in repair and regeneration of the brain. And so, you know, in, as a postdoc, we studied epilepsy, you study epilepsy. Um, I think I, I got into that because we were studying the adult stem cells in the hippocampus as, and I, my interest was, are these way, are these, is there a possibility that these could repair you know, be beneficial in a repair mechanism. Um, then we kind of started studying epilepsy and, you know, the take home, I think of the work that I did as a postdoc was that stem cells in the brain uh, for epilepsy are actually not beneficial. They are pretty detrimental and they 
basically rewire the brain to become epileptic. Yeah. So that was not, <laughs> that was not really like, I kind of answered a question, like, can we use these cells to repair the brain? Eh, not really. I mean, I think there's very limited evidence that they, they can repair it. Like, and I say repair as in like traditional regeneration. Like, and that's the thing, right? I mean, I think when people talk about that, they only take they only take neurons into account. There are so many other cell types that plays yep. around too. Yep, and that's a big deal. And I think that's the tricky part with the brain. So, right, you you come from uh, skin regeneration. Oh yeah, right. right. Um, and I uh, the question that I always throw to everybody, uh, so from a developmental perspective, is the skin and the brain both derive from ectoderm tissue. <laughs> they both come from the same germline. The skin, I would argue, is the most regenerative tissue in the body. And the brain is arguably one of the least regenerative. It's such a fascinating question to me. Like, how is that? Why is that? And what's up with it, right? I mean, what what um, like makes me you know, Marvel is these tissue stem cells. It's like, if you, I mean, of course, there are heterogeneity markers and some properties, but then globally, if you think about it, you have these slowly dividing stem cells, then that gives rise to transit amplifying cells. Then you have all your mature cells, which is, I mean, of course, there are some variations, but then just almost conserve with many of the tissues, intestine, half follicle, the gyrus, all that. It's just so, it's like, how, you know, like what are the basic mechanisms that like, like converging mechanism that decides stemness of a cell, right? And also another reason I changed from skin to brain was that competition, skin, skin, oh my God, those scientists are nuts. They have all these tools to, all these lineage tracing tools, all the, tools to play with the uh, epigenome and genetics and so many things. So as an early scientist to compete with those people, I mean, of course I could join in some big lab and get data, but then thinking after that, what would I do? I mean, relatively, I mean, of course it's a biggest organ, but then it's more simple compared to brain. And I was thinking in brain, there are so many questions that uh, that's left to answer, you know, like one you were saying and, in my opinion, it's one of the most complicated organ in the body, next to heart, in my opinion. So taking all this, then I jumped from skin to brain, didn't know shit, but then here we are enjoying it, of course. But then I, I remember when I first came to lab and you and Paro were there and you both were talking to me about gyrus and everything. And I looked at Paro and I was like, Paro, what is a hylus? And she looked at me like, what are you talking about? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it, it, yeah, it's been something. So, okay, let me ask you this. Mm. Now that you've spent time in the brain field, stem yes. cell, neural stem cell field, are there common mechanisms between skin repair, right, and brain I don't know because, because in the because, skin you've you've got similar types of cells, 
right? You have fibroblasts that are recruited to replace. Yeah, so in skin, I was studying interfollicular epidermis. That's like the uppermost layer. And there you had epidermal stem cells and also you have hair follicle stem cells. So when there is any wounding and everything, all these stem cells uh, work together to close the wound. And after closing the wound, these stem cells go back to their territory. I see. So the stem cells themselves, they're not to replenish that tissue. Yeah. Just to close the wound. Yeah, close. Yeah, more or less. Yeah. And then after it's more or less done, they kind of go back to their own respective territory because they are like multiple population of stem cell. So mm-hmm. it's very territorially segregated too. But then in dentigyrus, that's the thing, right? You cannot like selectively injure dentigyrus. No. I mean, all the TBI, traumatic brain injury models, are just either open skull or closed skull. And it's just you hit the brain and you see what changes happen, right? So personally, it's it's a bit tough to answer that question. But at the same time, what I'm interested in is the heterogeneity of these neural stem cells. Because in in skin, based in skin, based on the location, there are these uh, different population of stem cells have their own segregation. They, they, you know, they have their own specific territory. And these are defined by the speed with which these cells divide and all that. But then, yeah, I mean, there are recent um, papers that says ACL1 lineage and nesting positive lineage are kind of different. But then I wonder to which, I mean, to which degree, you know, like if I selectively ablate, let's say, nesting cells alone, what would the ACL ones do? And if I selectively ablate ACL, what the nesting ones do? And, you know, so like so many questions. And these are, I mean, these neural stem cells can also give rise to astrocytes. So these nesting-derived astrocytes and ACL-derived astrocytes, are there difference with that? So there are like so many questions that we don't have the answer to. And, and, and this is just, I'm talking about the, in a normal brain, like, you know, in a healthy brain, what happens to all these in like a diseased brain, right? Like seizure, Parkinson's, Alzheimer's and all these things. It's just so, so many things to be known, but people are not giving us the money. Yeah. So I, I think, you know, it's, it's tricky because one reason I kind of jump ship, right. uh, Starting my own lab was that, I found very little value to the stem cells in the hippocampus in terms of, in terms of the function. Shots are fired. Shots are fired. And I'll give you very, very specific examples. So we, years ago, published this Nest and TK paper where we used this to ablate stem cells. Uh, the nest in population that you're talking mm-hmm. about. Basically, you give the mouse... Um, can, Encyclovir, I think. Yeah, yeah, encyclovir. Yeah. Encyclovir, and anything expressing nesting expresses this thymidine kinase, and then those cells die. And so we can select, we can give them for four weeks this encyclovir, and all of the neural stem cells are gone. Mm-hmm. You just look into the hippocampus, and it's just regular, mature granule cells. Mm-hmm. These mice were. Now I, I have issues with mice, but these mice were completely normal, right? They weren't weird. We put them through a battery of behavioral tests 
just to find something that was like compromised anything normal like morse water maze you know learning memory task you know we did a ton of stuff and we found just a few things that we could measure so it told me that it's like there's very specific things that these stem cells are doing and i think we're starting to really understand how they're contributing to the hippocampus right Mm -hmm. the role of the hippocampus um there's still a lot of theories out there a lot of them are computational theories about its its you know ability to discriminate specific you know mm-hmm. context but it's all limited to the hippocampus right and so if you look at overall brain health um, you know the hippocampus is a very critical part of the brain but you know as a regenerative mechanism it's still so limited right these neurons don't these neural stem cells don't give rise to neurons that exit the hippocampus, right? Some of them in the subventricular zone can migrate out to other areas in mouse models of brain trauma. But, you know, the, the hippocampus is so limited in terms of what it can do for other things of the brain, right? And so functional benefit of the neurogenesis is still so limited to just what the hippocampus does. So it's... It's very, like I said, it's just kind of limited. Fair enough. So. But then these days, I um, I don't know, I find myself more interested in astrocytes. I mean, of course, I'm in neuro- neurogenesis, but then astro- they are just like fibroblasts in the brain, but then they, they can do so many things. Like yeah. I saw a recent study where they uh, drew chemogenetic silencing of astrocytes and that affects their behavioral functions and everything just like and only then i was thinking like why haven't people done the study before like apparently not that is one of the first studies thinking wow yeah yeah i think um i i think that's a there's a really nice cool theory out there Uh, i don't remember where where it came from but it's i think like you said like these astrocytes may be like synonymous to fibroblasts and other and like in the skin where they may be latent stem cells they may be some sort of you know cell type that has some capacity you know many years ago when they identified gfaps neural stem cells in the hippocampus right it was compared and the mechanism was related to the radial glial cells and cortical development Right, so these were kind of like astrocyte-like cells. Um, they ended up being radio-like glial cells. I mean, there's like yeah, a yeah. million names they called them over the years. Um, so there's something to them, right? There's something to them that makes them not just support cells. They're not just structurally there to hold the brain shape yeah. together. They're doing. I mean, they're clearly doing a bunch of stuff in terms of and they're and they're everywhere too. Integrating neural signals and yeah. um, modulating circuits and stuff like that. There's there's tons of stuff that they're doing. And these days, I find many people are working in microglia too. Like so many people are interested in microglia these days. Mm-hmm. It's a good thing. Yeah. I have another question for you. Like before doing all this, right? What was your PhD on? When, where did you do it? So I did my, my PhD was in Texas A&M University. Um, it's where I kind of started my regenerative biology interest. So I worked on 
a small annelid worm. So if you think about the earthworm, right, uh, this is a cousin to the earthworm. So my qualifying exam, I was like all the evolution of worms. It was ridiculous. <laughs> I had like tax taxonomy of all the worm families on my So you didn't do like mouse neuroscience experiment? No, 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 no. So I did, it was a small worm. And then think about, it was, a, it was basically an earthworm, but it was an aquatic earthworm. Mm -hmm. right? So it lives in freshwater lakes and ponds. Uh, and it is is really the only reason it's a big model system or it was at the time is because it's one of these like um environmentally sensitive organisms so uh, if you're monitoring like farmlands and the toxicology of um pest control in terms of crops and agriculture these are very you know these are sediment feeder so they burrow mm -hmm. into the sediment of freshwater lakes and ponds and so they're extremely sensitive to you know heavy metals and toxicity of um, pollutants and stuff so it's studied in, in that terms but in other terms other biological systems it's not really well studied um, but you could take this worm and cut it up into a bunch of pieces and each of those pieces it'll grow a totally new worm right so it's very similar to like planar yeah uh something happened to the audio okay yeah now i can hear you okay so it's it's similar to a planaria um in terms of the fact that you can just chop it up and it grows so i studied that process the regeneration of of that um oh i see okay so it's not it's not neuroscience then it's like it was neuroscience so i was looking at the the neural regeneration of that oh i see okay right um, what I learned was it is not a model system that everybody uses. So the tools that everybody could use, I could not use, right? So antibodies, oh, I want to look at this receptor. I can use an antibody, right? I can use, I can stain for glutamate receptors. Um, and I could see them, but there is always a question of like, how do you verify it's really a glutamate receptor? Uh, sequence of it like because it wasn't just not sequenced at all and so the um what do you call them analog what are the genes that are i'm not blanking on how you call it like genes that are common between oh, okay uh, ancestral um, okay. organisms so i would compare them to like other flies you know drosophila and mouse and stuff and I didn't have the tools. So then if I wanted to like knock overexpress something or underexpress something, like knock down or overexpress or use any type of tool to module modulate the system, I just didn't have that ability, right? Without really just from the ground up building everything, going through and sequencing everything. Um, and now that, so that's why I moved to the mouse because I wanted a system that I could have tools to work with. And so, you know, I just had a thought, like a random thought, like from your PhD till your professorship, you were like a through and through Texan. Yep, a hundred percent. Yeah, I'm, um, I, that's that's my so that's my story. Man. <laughs> I tell you, everybody's got a story. I'm a product of Texas public education, one hundred percent. Kindergarten, kindergarten through faculty. You know, oh, wow, really? Yep. Wow. 
So your family's from San Antonio, Dallas? From Dallas, yeah. Oh, wow, okay. I grew up here in the North North Texas area. Oh, wow. Actually, um, you know, I have a bunch of friends. That, so I now I work at Texas Women's University. I, I had a lot of friends from high school that went to school here. Wow, okay. It's funny, I'll like walk down the hallway, like in some of the buildings and I'll see, they've got, we've got a really, um, and so in Texas, gymnastics is not, college gymnastics is not a big deal. There's not any NCAA teams. Mm-hmm. Texas Women's University probably has the, the top gymnastics program in the state uh, for un- for college, right? They compete, they're not NCAA, but they compete um, at a, on a different conference, but they're, they just won like the national championships this year for that. So I'll walk down the hall and I'll see, I had a lot of friends that were on the gymnastics team over the years. And I'm like, man, I see them all on the, like posters and plaques and stuff with them all over the wall. So it's, it's kind of funny. You know, when I got the offer to come to Texas, um, I mean, I got many offers, but then I was in very much interested in Jenny's lab. So yeah. I accepted it. And all my friends in Japan and everywhere, they were like, of everywhere in the world, Gopo, why would you go to Texas? Also in a place called San Antonio. So what? were we in San Antonio when you, were we already in San Antonio when you were um, applying, like talking to Jenny about the position? No, I, I was in Japan, right? So I was in- No, no, because we had, we just moved to San Antonio. The, the oh, lab, yeah, yeah, yeah. I had right? my, I had my interview when you all were in San Antonio. Okay. Yeah. And, um, yeah, so everybody was like, why, like, why would you go there? Like, why would you consciously make a decision to go there? I, I, of course I didn't have an answer. I mean, my research was it, but they wanted more. And I came here and my very first day I went to Walmart, you know, after I need this groceries after airport and all the journey. And I went to the Walmart here near the university and I went there, there was like, literally rows and rows of one side it's us flag and one side it's texan flag and it, it, it was rows and rows of it and it was that time i was watching handmaid's tale too oh, yeah, yeah. and it was like what what did i get myself into where am i why do i feel like i'm a part of an american movie or something it was yeah. it was it was something but then but but then I would say people here have been so kind to me. It's surprising. It's just everybody here, they've been so kind to me. I've, I've received so much kindness here than anywhere I've been. That's, that's Antonio it. is a really great city. It is, yeah. it's, it's very inclusive. Um, there's a very diverse population of people compared to a lot of other cities. In oh, I agree. Um, it's a blue city through and through. Right. It's personally it's, that is important to me, at least. Yeah. And, and it makes a big difference. Um, and oh. so I'm, I'm curious, what, what were your thoughts when you got to Texas? Oh, I like, I'm sure you had an impression of it. Before. Oh, I, I had very strong dislike. <laughs> 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 no, I mean, because, you know, I was in, um, I was in Tokyo for like, I'm nearby Tokyo for like five years. Right. Yeah. So any weekends I am out in Tokyo doing all the things. And it was like, I mean, when I went to New York, it was very synonymous to New York, only cleaner. 
Yeah, yeah, oh, I bet, which is radically different than oh, anything. Yeah, so. There is no assault on nose or any of your senses in Tokyo. <laughs> anyway, so I'm, I'm just so used to, you know, going to all these museums, like going out with friends. It was such a bougie life there with the stipend. And here I came, I went to the downtown and I was asking my friends, so where are the buildings? Like, where, like, what am I to look at? That's it. You have seven buildings there. That's it. And then, then, you know, then, I mean, that was a big thing. And of course, lab, I mean, keeping aside from lab. And I thought everybody here was just so loud. They were just so incredibly loud. And, uh, and when I went to uh, supermarket, Walmart, H-E-B, all, they never had like a small size for cookies or anything. It was always the jumbo size, family yeah. size. And I was surprised to see how big the potato chips were, like lace and everything. It was just so big. And all that, it was, it was for, for a month or two, it was, it was a big cultural shift. Then COVID happened, that too. And it, when I moved in, it was the time when all the primaries and the election and everything was happening with the Trump and Biden. So I was right. Yeah, you, had, you had a wild time. Oh my God, yes. And it's funny, I, I came here in two weeks. I went to a convention of Bernie Sanders. Hmm. And it, it was wild. It was. It Did was, you know who Bernie Sanders was? Oh, of course. I mean, even even when I was in Japan, I used to follow American pop because it was just so entertaining. <laughs> and now, now, yeah, it's it's been it's been something. So, how was COVID for you? I mean, I know you said you. I remember at one point you said you were like locked in by yourself and you're so lonely. And I I, I was because I came here. I didn't know anyone. Right. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't have any friends. I mean, I, I didn't have any, I don't have any relatives or friends in US before I came here. And in a month it was locked down. So I was watching Office through and through. I, I finished the entire thing of Office in a matter of like two, three weeks. Then, then that, what, the Tiger King or something, that thing oh, happened. Yeah. So my friend was Netflix. But then slowly things started getting better. Yeah, I don't think we stayed close strictly for very long. I think by mid a month, I would say. Yeah, by mid summer, we were. I think we were really pushing. Everybody's kind of like, we need to get back in the lab. I was going crazy too. It was yeah. just like, what am I to do? I'm here. I want to do experiments. I can't do anything. Yeah, yeah, oh yeah. Especially if you're just starting. I remember you said you like you were going crazy because you're trying to just get something started again. That's a huge. And that, I remember that being like a really stressful shift is going from um, your PhD to graduates or to postdoc because you're so, and I, I'm saying this from switching fields, right? I went from a worm neurophysiology graduate program to mouse molecular biology, right? And it was just a radical change. I went from being competent and capable of doing experiments all of the time to not being able to do anything. Oh yeah. Oh my God. I had to learn everything all of the time. Like not just like you said, you know, like you said with parole, like what's the highlights? <laughs> learning all new terminology, learning all new vocabulary, a whole new system. It's, it's like, I mean, and these things, it only, you know, you only get more of it. The more you do experiments and the more you're in it, no matter, no amount of reading papers does anything. 
Uh-huh. Like, I mean, it, it's true because in the skin, I was like, oh, I could do this. I could do that. I could do, you know, it was just everything was in autopilot at that point. Then when I came here, I had to just start from beginning. I just felt so stupid. Yeah, because you're so comfortable making progress and you know what it feels like to make progress. And then you're just like, why have I run this Western block 35 times? And I have shit Western blots every single time. I know. <laughs> and you're like, oh, this is... <laughs> wild times but then i'm so glad things got better but then i feel even better when i hear stories of my friends who had to sack an entire mouse colony and you know all that it was like oof those are rough that would be yeah so starting my lab in the middle of this i kind of feel fortunate because i have a couple friends who probably the worst position was they had they had started their lab about two years before it started so I had about two years where I'm at right now, year to two years, you're really building momentum, right? And then it just gets crushed and then you just have to start over. I imagine probably starting your postdoc, it would be the same thing, right? Three years into your post, like right now, if we just shut down again for three months, like it would be crushing. I would go crazy. Right. I mean, talk about no progress. It's backpedaling. Oh, so... Even thinking about it makes me feel uneasy. And I'm like, no, people wear masks. Well, I mean, we're in Texas. It's not going to, nobody, <laughs> we're not going back. Oh, God, that's nothing. Well, the thing is, we are not going by the entire Texas is going back, it seems like, from all the legislation and rules. And that's another conversation altogether. Yeah. I know. So how So how did, um, once, once the lab started opening back up, what was it that changed like, what was some of the first things you were doing that you really... Oh, I, I didn't know. I really didn't know because then I was with my skin thing, right? I was so comfortable here. And here I had to basically study what, where the research is right now and what are the questions that's been not, um, you know, that's been yet to be addressed. And I have these questions and I was like, I don't know any strategy. I don't know anything. I don't know how to give pilo. I don't know how to give the injections, nothing. So it's like figuring that out at the same time, trying to link all these techniques that I'm learning new to what I want to do. And also getting familiar with organoids and all the work because before coming here, I had no clue what an organoid was. Yeah, yeah. So it was like an influx of so much information at the short time while having the challenge to figure, you know, have my shit together. So it's, it's, it's wild. But then now that I think of it, it makes me laugh, like how crazy things were. I, I think, you know, for myself, especially looking back, it was such a good move to do that. I think in the long run, like it sucks. It's, it's stressful, but you know, I agree. My skill set, my, flexibility my ability to solve problems i feel like is way more powerful now that you go through that sharp learning curve right because i i've had this conversation with a lot of people about going to do a postdoc do you do you switch fields like what's the what's the what's the read on that like is it good or bad and i i think it really just depends on what your field is and what you want to do right um i radically changed fields and i think it was a tremendously 
beneficial move. Like it, it was difficult, but I think all of the skills that I learned as a graduate student now complement all of the skills that I worked on and learned as a postdoc. And now that's what my lab does, right? It, it, I mean, because since I came from skin, skin, they they all use so much lineage tracing mm-hmm. with all these different tools, and that is giving me a very different perspective on how to even look at these neural stem cells and what do they yeah. do. It's oh, been yeah. it's been tremendously helpful. I mean, at the same time, it's what you want to do, right? Yeah, it's it's so it's interesting because my background is neurophysiology. And I look at like the organoid field, the brain organoid field, and they're very much, you know, cell biologists and stem cell biologists. They're not really, there's not a huge neuroscience twist to it. So it's taking that, you know, your background, your, your training that's in a unique field and bringing it to a new field that I think is going to make a tremendous impact, right? So I think having that diverse perspective of skin stem cell biology is going to bring an avenue of thought to the brain that I think the brain needs like the people. In- and, I, and I personally think this is the right, I, this is the right time for me to change too, because I don't want to change my research field later, you know? So I think after your PhD, if you want to change your field, I think that's the right time to do so because then you have the strength in one field, you are starting in the new one, you know, you can learn, you can have the benefit of both. Yeah. Yeah. Did you see that? I think there's a, a paper that just came out. I saw it on Twitter. It was, a, I think it was a zebrafish stem cell paper. Where they, looked, they looked at the, I think they took the brain bro construct and put it in i want to say the dermal cells of the zebrafish and they could look at how the lineage of the skin cells i think it was skin i didn't read it so i qualifier i did not read the paper i just saw that the tweet about it and the they had great images and beautiful video um rainbow images are always so pretty yeah, yeah i should go find it but i think it was one of those big nature papers that they 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 figured out a new way that stem cells divide in you know new type of lineage. Oh yeah, uh, is it is it like one curving? It, I saw a paper where it's about <laughs> stem cells. Where oh god. Yeah, we should go read it, right? <laughs> <laughs> sort of half-ass explaining the headline. <laughs> Fair enough to everyone. Okay. Anyways, I, I just thought that. Anyway, okay. I think it's been a it's been an hour or something. Okay. Yeah, it's four o'clock. Yeah. Alrighty. Then maybe ne- from next time we can have some. Uh, we can invite a scientist and we can have the same conversation about their research and their journey. Yeah, I think that'd be great. So I have um my buddy too. He's the great. one I, I mentioned earlier. Um. He just got an R01, his first R01, so he's super excited. He studies ASCL1. Oh, wow. And OLEG2. So he looks at, um, um, you know, sulfate and um, mostly astrocytes and oligodendrocytes in the mm-hmm. brain and how it, how it um, gives rise to uh, glioblastomas and different mm-hmm. lineages of, of, of oligodendrocytes, too, so. 
So he's a, he's a great scientist. I mean, he's very exciting. Students love to talk. He, so he, I invited him for the seminar and he got one of the better receptions from the students. They all loved it. So it's fascinating. So I, I would suggest him. Oh, yes, please. We can, we so, can definitely have them. Eh? Sure. So he's, he's a good, he's a good guy. All right. Let me stop recording now. Oh, stop recording. So, well, all right, then everyone will meet next month. Bye. <laughs>